Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by James Ashley, an Executive Director of Goldman Sachs. James is Head of the International Market Strategy Team, with responsibility for providing actionable macroeconomic ideas and perspectives on the latest international market developments. Prior to joining the firm, James was Chief, was Chief European Economist at RBC Capital Markets, spent over a decade as an economist in London and New York, and also worked on policy at the Bank of England for five years. James earned a BA in Economics from Durham University and an MSc in Economics from University College London. So first and foremost, a very warm welcome to you, James, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. Thanks for the invitation to take part. It's a pleasure. Not at all. Now, needless to say, we're in rather interesting times, and it's, uh, it's great that you've got this uh, international focus as well. So well, what's your current kind of um, reflections uh, in terms of the US market, perhaps more on a more timely basis, now that it's petering out a little bit, um, some of what we've been seeing in terms of the first quarter earnings season. Yes, I think if you broaden that out and just think about US equities more generally, what we saw was the US equity market sell off, lose about a third of its value between mid-February and mid-March. And then since then, we've seen a fairly spectacular rally. In fact, there's a three-week period between mid-March and mid-April where we saw the strongest rally since 1933. So spectacular in terms of magnitude. And yet at the same time, that coincided with a series of macro readings that were very, very weak indeed. So what's been driving this recovery hasn't really been the positive news from the macro side of things. It's been more about, I think, two elements. One is the, the, the medical news, the fact that it seems that hopefully, perhaps, we're beyond the worst of this and that those curves are flattening. And as a consequence, economies are starting to reopen. And then secondly, this enormously powerful policy response from fiscal policymakers and monetary policymakers. And I think that's really what's driven markets globally, but particularly the market you reference, US equities. I think that's really what's been behind the moves highest. It's not so much macro fundamentals driven. I think it's more about policy driven rallies that have been supplemented by some chink of light at the end of the tunnel, which suggests that perhaps the medical situation, far from being resolved, is at least now beginning to improve. I mean, you're absolutely right. If, if we look, um, I had a quick look earlier, uh, the weekend in the uh, 20th of March, the Dow Jones at that point was down 33% in the year to date. As we speak, it's down just under 15%. S&P down 9%. And the NASDAQ has actually now moved, the technology-laden NASDAQ has actually now moved into positive territory for the year. It's up 1.6%. So it's eradicated all of its previous losses. In terms of that reporting season that we've just been through, do you think there's an element maybe of the market? Obviously, it's a discounting mechanism. It's trying to look ahead, looking through those numbers. Yeah, so I think there's two elements here. One is to say the macro data that I've just referenced very briefly, they are inherently backward looking. Now, it's telling you about what happened in March or what happened in Q1. And from a market perspective, that's water under the bridge. You know, there's nothing we can do about that. That's already impacted earnings and so on. The market is forward looking and saying, well, OK, what about Q2, Q3, Q4 and so on? And there's two dimensions to this. One is to say, well, even if you believe that earnings are going to be suppressed, not just for a few weeks, but perhaps for several quarters, because the normalization process might take some time, that's bad news. But if it comes at the same time that you've got perhaps interest rates anchored, you're nailed down at zero for an extended period of time, 
then the discount rate you should be applying to future earnings expectations is supportive of higher equity markets. So they argue from a macro perspective, the message I would send from a macro perspective is to say, you should not think that we are anywhere near recovering the ground that we've lost. It will take several quarters, it may be until the end of next year, before we fully make up the ground that's been lost over the course of Q1 and Q2. And it may be non-linear. It may be that we start this normalization process and there has to be some retreat back into forms of lockdown or quarantine. Hopefully not, but that has to be a non-trivial possibility. So I think the macro situation still remains very, very challenged. But going back to what we talked about earlier, what is the reason that the market is rallying? Well, the market is rallying. One of the key drivers of it is policy. So if you're expecting policy rates, interest rates, whether it's in the US, UK, Europe, to remain at or close to zero for a very, very long period of time, then that's supportive of valuations in equity markets moving substantially higher. Now, that doesn't necessarily fully justify the entire magnitude of the rally that we've seen. And I think it's fair to say that if you look at how much ground the equity market has made up over the course of the past six weeks or so, then I think it's fair to say there's, there's limited upside on a tactical short term horizon, given the likely negative flow of macro news we're going to be seeing. But on a longer term time horizon, a strategic time horizon, again, to reiterate, if you think that policy will, will remain very, very supportive, and if you believe the economy will slowly start to improve, even if it's going to be a protracted and non-linear process, then that makes sense that equities will continue to grind higher over a long term horizon. And that's absolutely key, of course, taking that longer term horizon, because there, ha there had been some concerns, of course, that um, perhaps all this fiscal monetary intervention has given equities something of a false floor, as opposed to perhaps being a saviour and staving off the worst of it. Because even taking a longer term perspective, I think it's fair to say that the full force economically of COVID is likely to hit when we start to get the second quarter uh, earnings numbers um, coming through and we're probably going to have to remind ourselves about this conversation and taking that longer term view. Yeah absolutely whether you think about this from a macro perspective or from an earnings perspective Q1 is a mere foretaste of what you should expect in Q2. You know if you think about this just think about the timeline on this for most of Europe and for most of the US COVID-19 really only started to hit the economy in mid-March. Now prior to that there, were, there was some disruption Obviously, China was embroiled in this in January and February, and that dislocated supply chains globally. So there was some impact, but it really became the dominant economic force for most of Europe and the US in the back half of March. Whereas when we go into Q2, we've obviously seen April and looks like most of May, we're going to see significant wipeouts of our, you know, significant lockdowns, which are weighing down on activity in many sectors and, and leaving many sectors to be almost closed in their entirety. So even if you believe optimistically that June might see something of a rebound, and I think that really is an optimistic view, but even if we see something of a you know, spectacular rebound in June, it still means that you're offsetting the damage done in April and May. So Q2, I think, is highly likely to be much worse than whatever we're seeing in Q1. Yes, that's right, because obviously we've seen this um, quite extraordinary unemployment number in the States, which has um, gone up to 20 million in no time whatsoever. And of course, there is an argument that uh, whilst one would expect most of those jobs to return, the US was in pretty good shape leading up to the crisis. Some of uh, the retail companies in the States, for example, have gone to the wall. And so there could potentially be something less of a jobs market to go back to. Yeah, and actually, if you want to dig into some of those macro numbers, obviously, the jobs report you're referencing came out just a couple of days ago. I would argue that the, the underlying message from that jobs report is even worse. You know, we're talking about a 10 percentage point increase in the unemployment rate. As you said, 
unemployment now rising by 20 million, but actually in addition to that 20 million, there's a further 5 million who are now working part-time, but would prefer to be working full-time, but there's simply not the, the, the hours of the work for them to be gainfully employed. And there's a further 6 million who've just dropped out of the labour force altogether. You know, in order to register as unemployed, you've got to be actively looking for a job. Well, there's over 6 million Americans who said there's no chance of finding a job. They're just dropping out altogether. So the headline unemployment numbers that you see are horrible but actually the underlying situation is somewhat even worse. So there's, there's an abundance of slack in the US economy right now, which has all sorts of ramifications, including perhaps the prospect of disinflationary or even deflationary pressures in the short term. And yet, as we say, and, and we often look to the states, of course, as being the, uh, the tech centre, the Nasdaq index is, is now actually in positive territory for, for the year. I mean, obviously, some of those, uh, we've seen some fairly stellar performances from some of the so-called work-from-home stocks, such as Zoom which have obviously benefited, and, and Netflix, where viewership had habits on an enforced basis, uh, have had to change somewhat. Is, is there any other, in terms of tech stocks generally, is, are there any other obvious drivers why the Nasdaq should have been, um, as we speak, largely unaffected in terms of the index move anyway? Well, a couple of things. Actually, just to, to follow up, I mean, it relates back to the previous question, but it ties in nicely to what you're asking now. We just talked through how horrible the unemployment data were for the US on Friday. But going back to what we said before, it's not a fundamentals driven market at the moment. So horrible macro data. And yet the S&P, that was up by 1.7% on Friday. So even though you had this you know, absolutely awful, worst ever jobs report, you still saw equity markets moving higher, which again hammers home the point that it's not the macro data that are currently dominating the market. It's important. Fundamentals will ultimately reassert themselves. But for now, it's not fundamentals that are driving the market. To answer your point about you know, where are the opportunities, I guess, is the more, the more general conversation within the US and indeed globally. I think a lot of companies um, are tapping into population segments that perhaps they would have previously found unaccessible. So tech-driven business models that might have previously focused on the younger generations, millennials or Gen Z, they're now having exposure to older generations, people that might have perhaps never used online educational resources or online streaming resources or online grocery shopping before. So it's not just about the NASDAQ and the tech funds. It's about firms that are using modern technologies to adapt to a new way of living. They've now entered into a world in which they can access new population segments. And some of those people, some of us will revert back to pre-coronavirus lifestyles the first moment we possibly can. But maybe 5%, 10%, maybe even 15 or 20% of people will stick with this new experience. They'll find it's made their lives more convenient. They find that they like this new experience. And as a consequence, it's not just tech stocks. It's businesses that are able to operate more nimbly, more flexibly to adapt to a new way of doing business. Now, We've spoken about how much of a recovery the American markets have made from the low points uh, of March in particular. That hasn't necessarily translated to the UK. Again, as we speak, the FTSE 100, for example, is down 22% in the year to date. So it's not partaken uh, of this particular party. Is there anything in particular that strikes you about that under relative underperformance? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of factors, right? So firstly, it's just to think about the magnitude of the hit to the UK economy. And we have to talk in terms of scenarios here. Let's be humble. Nobody knows how the medical landscape will evolve, and therefore no one can say with any great confidence how the economic and market landscape will evolve. But if you think about credible forecasters, think about the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility. They came out two or three weeks ago, and they said that their best case, their best guess scenario for growth this year is that the UK economy will show a decline of somewhere in the region of about minus 
13%. I think from memory, it's like minus 12.8%. That's by far the worst decline that we will have ever seen in the UK. So it tells you something about the domestic situation. But that's macro. Going back to, as I said, it's not necessarily a fundamentals driven environment right now. It's thinking about market dynamics and thinking about policy responses. I think in the UK, to understand the underperformance of UK equities, think about the sector composition. So you mentioned the FTSE 100. Think about what are the sector weights in the FTSE 100 and how does that compare to the sector weights in global equities? And you will see that even if you were neutral in terms of your sector allocations, the UK market has a significant overweight to oil and a significant overweight to financials. Well, think about the environment that we're in, partly as a result of coronavirus, partly as a result of oil-specific stories. You've seen the oil price collapse. Indeed, oil prices were trading negatively just a couple of weeks ago. So clearly that's going to hurt anybody who's got oil exposure. The financial sector, clearly that's going to take losses as a result of this. Interest rates are down. That's going to crimp profitability of many in the financial sector. So if you're just thinking about an index that has a large overweight to oil and a large overweight to financials, I think that explains a large part of why that index, which happens to be the FTSE 100, is underperforming global equities. So it's not so much about the UK macro situation. I think that does have relevance, as I've just said, about the magnitude of the hit to GDP this year. But it's more about just what's the composition of UK equities. And it's not favourable in the climate that we're in at the moment. I totally agree. And you can also um, throw mining stocks into that uh, particular yep. mix as well. And often estimated that 70% of earnings are coming from out, outside the outside of the UK. On top of that, of course, as you mentioned within financials, you've got the banking stocks, you've had the rug pulled from underneath them in terms of paying dividends, which had obviously been a further attraction for investing in the UK, um, for if, if nothing else, for income purposes, particularly in the, uh, the dividend drought that we're starting to see at the moment. So I, I thought, James, I'd leave the, uh, the easiest question until last, which is um, your outlook for the, the rest of the year. We've, we've heard the alphabet soup, is it going to be V-shaped to the recovery or W-shaped or L-shaped? What do you see over the, uh, the remaining months, months of 2020, notwithstanding the fact that clearly you take a, a longer term view in investment term? I'd like to think that we see this gradual progression back to normality. But when I listen to those who are medically qualified and competent to talk about this, of which I should emphasize, I am not one. But when I listen to what they have to say, it seems to me that there's a, a very significant likelihood that when we start to go back to our semi-normal daily lives, then there's a real chance that we start to see another flare-up of infections. I and mean, we have to have a retreat back into some kind of lockdown or isolation. Hopefully not as severe as the one that we are still in at the moment, but perhaps not this linear progression. So when we think about V-shaped or U-shaped or whatever it might be, it seems to be the general perception is whatever form it takes, there'll be this gradual progression towards an endpoint. I suspect that might not be the case, that we start on that path and we have to come back a step. So it's two steps forward, one step back. And even when we do start that process, I think, think about the end point once we're through this. We're going to emerge from this experience with the government and many corporates having a lot more debt on their balance sheet. So I think their priority is going to be, how do we reduce that debt? And what does that mean in terms of growth? What does that mean in terms of our priorities? Is it investment? Is it hiring new workers? Or is it deleveraging, which means lower investment, perhaps lower growth? And that has huge implications, not just for the corporate sector, but for the economy as a whole. So I think for the course of this year, we're likely to see an uneven recovery. 
within any individual country, but certainly across countries, it will be uneven. And I think when we get to the end of that recovery phase, we are still looking at an economy that's going to be significantly smaller because of the recession. And even the, com the companies that are left standing, those that are, have made it through without going bankrupt, they're going to be more risk averse. And as a consequence, the growth is likely to be somewhat weaker. So what does that mean for investors? I think for investors, it means you've got to be very thoughtful, you've got to be very active, you've got to be diversified, but also you can't make these simplifying assumptions that you know, it's going to be V-shaped and by the end of the year, it'll be back to normal. Or it's going to be U-shaped and it might take until the middle of next year. It depends which country you're looking at, which sector. How does that correspond to the exit strategy from all of these measures that have been put into place? So I think this is very much the environment to be long-term, to be diversified, to be thoughtful, to be active. And even with all of those basic principles of how to success, successfully invest over the medium term horizon, it's going to be a challenging environment. But, you know, that's the environment we sadly find ourselves in right now. Well, fortunately, that means that there is going to be um, a lot of fat to chew over the next few quarters, quarters to come as this uh, fascinating scenario unfolds. Unfortunately, we're out of time. So very insightful, James. It's been lovely to speak to you and, and thank you very much indeed for your time. That's James Ashley of Goldman Sachs. And thank you very much for listening in. Do tune in for the next Interactive Investor podcast.